If you're like most mission-driven professionals that I know, your relationship to work and your career have changed since the pandemic began. I'm Jen Walker-Wall, career strategist, resume writer, and founder of WorkWonders Careers. This season, we're talking to mission-driven professionals to hear how their relationship to work, careers, and ambition have changed over the past couple of years. I hope you'll join us. Welcome to Reimagining Ambition. Do you remember those first few days and weeks when it seemed like the whole world had shut down? When we clapped as healthcare workers changed shift? When we thought we'd be living this way for just a couple of weeks? When we were all in it together? Yeah, that part feels like a distant memory for me too. I was curious to hear what people's experiences working in those initial periods looked and felt like. We were doing Zoom calls before it was a thing we were really positioned well to make that pivot. And so in terms of how work continued to flow, we did regular check-ins um, as we always did you know, via Zoom. It's just now, instead of being in a conference room and maybe talking to a colleague that's across the country, you're in someone's bedroom, you're in their dining room, their kids are walking around in the background, right? We were used to Zoom. We already had Zoom. We had Slack. We had all kinds of collaborative tools. We were used to sharing documents on Google Drive and having people make comments and mentioning people in various different places. Thankfully, most of us were already pretty familiar with the video meeting platform, Zoom, but we were also learning to use it at a totally different scale. I used to use Zoom occasionally to meet with students who were studying abroad, but that was once or twice a month at most. And so I remember last day in the office, a dear friend of mine, Javier, and I sitting down practicing different Zoom formats with each other setting up the waiting room, breakout rooms, appointment calendars versus office hours. We set up our office G-chat, which previously didn't exist, you know, just trying to figure out all of these ways to create the community that our office had established to perhaps function in a remote world. I had been familiar in some respects with Zoom, just having worked internationally and having worked across the country. Most of my team was not at all. I am eternally grateful to the folks who sat online and did every type of training that they could that was available on Zoom's website at the time to better understand what capacity was, what it was like to share slides and kind of remembering all of those challenges. I mean, it, now it feels like second nature. Most of us who were used to being in offices, labs, and classrooms were trying to figure out how to, you know what I'm going to say, right? Pivot. When we were home full remote, what does my day look like? Who am I got to talk to? Figuring out the work piece to it while also trying to help my daughter be remote educated. I would say it took me a couple of weeks to get used to the mindset of working from home. And I was worried because I, I felt like I was being as productive as I could be. but there was nobody around <laughs> to talk to, or um, I was getting used to that element because I live alone and I, I wasn't sure how to interact with people still. So at one point I was calling one of my colleagues once a week just to catch up. So I made the decision right away. Uh, I was going asynchronous because we were given the autonomy to choose. And so I was recording lectures. I was adapting activities so that they could be done by students when and where they were. And I shifted primarily to, okay, I'm going to make myself available during course hours, but I'll be available by email as usual and go from there. So it was a pretty quick shift and 
I think I handled it well. I had already been teaching one course per semester online since I had started that job in 2017. So I had some tricks that I like to use in order to adapt activities I had done in the classroom. I remember really vividly the email that I sent out to all of my clients to say, we're not going to be meeting in person anymore. And writing this whole thing about, like, I remember sending them a link to that video that had gone viral of the people in Italy singing from their windows to each other and just saying, we won't be together in person, but we'll still be able to feel each other and we'll find ways to be in community with each other regardless. And I encourage you to take care of your neighbor, take care of your family and friends, and I'm going to be here with you through all of that. We had two weeks to get 2,000 classes online, and that's a corporate we because it's not like myself and my direct colleagues had to do that. We weren't responsible for all of that, but everybody on campus was. If you knew how to use a computer, if you knew how to use Canvas, if you knew how to record video or edit something, you were required. You were essential. I mean, this was not going to work unless everybody helped out as best as they could because there was just, there was no way that a completely in-person experience like that could go fully online in a short period of time with the same team of six people helping out on campus. Within just a few weeks, we were learning to tackle challenges big and small, from learning to work from home to keeping our organizations afloat. The apartment I lived in, when you imagine an attic, you imagine the triangle roof, and that was my apartment. So I'm sitting where my, I had to like makeshift a desk. You know, at first I was at my kitchen table and then I had got this tiny, tiny little desk and you would laugh at it now seeing because the Zoom, my head was kind of tilted <laughs> because the ceiling was like on a slant. And so I'm sitting there, you know, it maybe looks like I'm really engaged as a therapist, you know, my head sort of tilted and I'm like, oh, mm -hmm. oh my goodness. But really I just couldn't straighten my head. <laughs> One of the hard parts that I couldn't continue is that I had resources in the university buildings. So I had experimental aspects that could only be done with my hands on the resources in the buildings. So if I didn't have access to that, I just could not run experiments. I could not collect new data. There are always results that we can explore after the fact. So we can do analysis. We can think about our interpretations. We can write. But depending on the phase of the project that you're in, sometimes you just have these like scientific questions where you simply need to run the next experiment and ask a reasonable question and get feedback. So that was on pause. I could do a little bit given the phase I was at in my project, but you know, I was trying to finish my PhD at the time. This is a roadblock, to put it lightly. I was running a committee of people that were going to be running this auction that was supposed to be in May. And if we were canceling the auction, what did that mean for the fundraising goal? And my boss was so smart. He was thinking ahead, like, how can we transition this online? Because he knew that a lot of nonprofits had moved their auctions online anyway, using an online platform instead of just in person. And we had done something kind of sort of similar the two years before when we had done it, but not with like an online based, more like a, we had something in our database that ran the auction. So I went into strategy mode and research mode and kind of tried to look around, see what other nonprofits had done. I remember sitting in on a lot of webinars of how do you run your auction online? A lot of arts organizations that had to pivot last minute to moving things online, like the week of COVID 
it was a lot of like, let's all teach each other. We did a lot of like events just to have our startups meet different members of the communities, whether it was like mentors, each other, investors. Our biggest event of the year was important for like partnership renewals. So we pretty much went from like 100 to zero when the pandemic happened. And we had to also for the accelerator program, like completely revamp all of our in-person events and cohorts to virtual, like planning virtual events. We actually had a really quick pivot. I know that word is very overused, but in March of that year, we had a big giving challenge that we immediately switched over to student support. And that was really successful. So we had a big win early. While working from home was probably the safest way for most of us to work, it wasn't without its challenges. At the time I was living alone, I was dating someone, but we lived maybe 15 minutes apart and her sister who she lived with worked in healthcare. So we made a decision pretty early on that we would separate until we knew that it was okay to spend time together in person because we didn't want her sister to be at risk. And we also didn't want us to be at risk of whatever she might bring home with her since it was all still a new developing situation. It was very isolating for me. I lived alone, one bedroom apartment. And because I had switched to asynchronous, it was very easy to slip into the habits we have in graduate school, right? Staying up late, sleeping late as a result and just sort of the whole schedule getting thrown off. Nobody had figured out remote onboarding well or at all. So there were certainly efforts to do so. And I think with my own background as somebody who had been working, like teaching and developing online learning experiences, if I can't figure this out, what the hell have I been doing the last decade? I felt it very much on me entirely and being okay with that, but also thinking like there's a lot of other people that this level of responsibility feels outside the norm if a company is looking to foster and make its staff welcome and make its staff feel belong. So it felt hard. It also felt hard because I was starting to work with people who overwhelmingly relied on face-to-face interactions and the way things could be massaged and made more comfortable or information passed along informally in a face-to-face space. And so it felt like I had to struggle a lot to get information or to really know what was going on. So that was a challenge. I met with so many students during the first few weeks of the pandemic, incredibly talented students, but just were not prepared for online learning and or were facing circumstances in their quarantine situation that made it very difficult for them to be students. I had one student who was living in rural Wyoming with very limited internet connectivity. And so finding hotspots for her suddenly became a priority. Or students who were trying to zoom in from classes in a one-bedroom apartment with younger siblings. And, you know, or I would zoom with students and they were in their car because that was like the one quiet place. What happened, especially as a national program, maybe not every district closed down at the same time, but one by one, it was literally, I remember I was an executive director. There were other executives across the country as well. And we would get on a call and it would be like, my district's closed today. So maybe it was like one city in a state. And then the next day it was like, all my schools are closed. And you would hear ping, 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 one by one. It was like dominoes falling until every last one of our schools was closed. Remember, we are a school-based program. Our fees came from those schools. So when there is no school in session and you're a service provider, they weren't paying out at that point. And so the organization really had to quickly think about 
how to both cut losses and minimize expenses like almost overnight, right? There's no new money coming in. So really what the executive team decided to do pretty quickly, they told me by the second week in April that they were basically like, look, we are in a situation because of this happening. We're like, we can't pay you anymore. One of the interesting things to come from these conversations on that initial period was that this transition forced us to adopt new practices. And some of those were actually working better for us personally and professionally. I kind of liked it more than teaching in person, simply because it was less stressful on me logistically. I'm a disabled person, so I do have mobility issues, but I'm pretty mobile. <laughs> I am able to go places and commute from one place to another that's doable for me, but it's not easy for me necessarily. So the more I did it, for any able-bodied individual, will be exhausted from working eight hours in the coffee shop and then commuting into Boston. And I don't drive. So all of that was done through public transit. As you know, Boston is a tiny town, however, like relatively speaking. So it's, but it's still like, it was literally and figuratively hard on my feet and legs, you know, so and on my body in general. So long story short, when I didn't have to do that part anymore and I could teach from my living room, that was in a way a relief just for me selfishly, right? For, for the sake of my health whatever was left of it. And of course, I was appreciating the fact that we could do this work remotely without having to commute physically, but also without having to endanger students and ourselves and anybody else by forcing ourselves to be in person like that. Because it was about theater and history of theater and, and culture, I always did incorporate, and I do, you know, practices of accessibility and discussions about accessibility and the lack of accessibility in our world. So in teaching at that time, more accessible theater was done online and remotely because everything was remote. And that was a great opportunity for the students to learn about how actually we don't have to do everything in person, especially the performing arts, because even though some people get upset about like, oh, all these Zoom theater plays, blah, 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 how stupid. And it's like, sure, but do you understand how many more millions of people around the world technically have access to this art now? That's part of the reason why I don't teach anymore, because I was at that point, I was just sick of explaining it. And there are many other reasons, obviously. But I do think that the idea and the practice of accessibility converged at the time, because it's one thing to be accessible in theory. It's another thing when you have to be accessible because there's no other way to do it. And then you realize, wait a second, as a society, you go, wait, we don't have to go into the office building to do What? <laughs> right? And I know it's been a discourse ever since, right? But for teaching in particular accessible syllabi, accessible curriculum, accessible assignments, accessible note-taking on so many levels was like, wait, we can do this? And the thing is, we could do this even before we had to do this, but we just didn't want to bother. And then we bothered and it was great, I think, in that sense. I used to describe myself as very buttoned up with students. I think in part because I was kind of on the younger end and so I wanted to you know, really establish some sort of authority figure role. And something about Zoom kind of dropped that because at that point I was pregnant, which my students didn't know about because I wasn't totally showing. And then at that point you could only see, you know, this much. But I was Zooming at home and my dog usually sat on the couch next to me. And so, you know, at that point, you, know, you just were looking for any sense of joy and happiness. And, and so, you know, I could tilt my laptop down and, and 
My students would see the dog. Oh, you have a dog? I didn't know you have a dog. And I started sending out weekly messages to all my students, and I always included a dog picture in it. And they always said how much they liked it. And then once my daughter was born, I would send a baby picture. There was a lot of cognitive dissonance around. There's this catastrophe happening, and we want to be there in person, but it doesn't actually make sense. I'm studying scalable mental health. I'm trying to get things to people. This is already some things we've been talking about. Like, hey, do we really need to be face-to-face -face with people to make this work? I don't think so. And so you kind of have this old school way of doing things kind of forced out, essentially, at least for a period of time. They saw a result that they had been trying to get with a bunch of committees and a bunch of work groups for years of how can we decrease the no-show rate? We have a really high no-show rate. What can we do? Turns out, if you offer telehealth, your no-show rate doesn't go to zero, but it goes down a lot because people, in order to show up for their appointment, don't have to, okay, how do I pick up my kid and then drive and get there? Or oh, can I get time off every week to get to this appointment? And I probably can't, so am I taking unpaid leave? If I can step out for 45 minutes on my shift and I can literally do it like on my phone, that's doable. I don't have two hours to make this happen, but I can do the appointment. And so when people saw benefits that aligned with problems they were trying to solve already, I think some of my advocacy worked. It was easy for me to transition to working online and I grew to really like it. I was like, oh. I really prefer this, actually. Like, it's a bummer that I'm still paying rent at a place that I'm not at. That was really annoying. But otherwise, I was kind of felt like I was coming into my own in a way that I didn't expect because there were so many people in my field that were just like digging their heels in, like, this is not going to work. This is not going to be effective. And I was just kind of like, it's still going to be effective. What do you mean? Like, that just like didn't make any sense to me. So it felt exciting to me to be like, okay, I need to be the person to be present for these people, be here for them, and kind of take on this new thing. People can recognize when you actually have to jump into action short term in order to do something. We have a decent sense of those little moments of heroism. But the problem is like when that doesn't stop, when you realize that places will manufacture emergencies after that, there's no putting the genie back in the bottle, I think, once certain things like that happen. You can really hear how much work and pride went into this effort to pivot. You probably even remember the way you and your own colleagues stepped up to the plate. We really were all in it together. There are some really interesting seeds here, though. Cognitive dissonance, manufactured emergencies, unsustainable workloads. We'll be following up on those, don't you worry. For now, I'm struck by these experiences that so many people put blood, sweat, and tears into serving their constituents and customers, adopting new technologies and practices, and keeping organizations going. I'm also hearing the ways in which the pandemic forced our hand to move towards practices that might actually be better, whether it was having greater compassion for one another greater accessibility to the arts and events or to telehealth medical services, greater flexibility in where we could actually work from, easier collaboration, less driving and air travel, greater cost savings. We're all in it together. Didn't last that long. It gave way to the new normal and ultimately back to normal. 
And while it's easy to understand that we'd all be eager for the pandemic to end, personally, I would have loved to have seen what might have been possible if we spent a little bit more time being in it together. Coming soon on Reimagining Ambition, we'll hear from self-employed professionals, parents and caretakers, and talk about the so-called great resignation. Lucy was, you know, two months old. I started to get a better sense of her wake windows and sleeping and, you know, what could I reasonably accomplish during these different periods of time to set up a rough office calendar, but also prepping students for the fact that I will be working remotely with a new board. So my camera might be off because I'm breastfeeding. I might have to just mute if she's crying too much or just be prepared. But I also, in terms of, you know, going back to work a little bit earlier, I was very lonely, you know, and I, I had heard that new mothers tend to feel lonely. Doing it during the pandemic was level of isolation I couldn't have imagined. Around that time, my mom was pivoting from being in a clinical trial at Sloan Kettering in New York City to, for better or worse, she didn't do so well on the trial. She had too many side effects. So the silver lining was she transitioned care to a team in Connecticut, which ended up working out because she just wouldn't have been able to, once March came around, be seeking care in New York City. So that worked out, but really a, a good chunk of my weeks was made up of going back and forth to Connecticut. Or if I wasn't there, I was dealing with managing some medication management, maybe corresponding with care teams, things like that. So any given day kind of had a good mix of the business hat, the mom hat, and the daughter slash medical ad. My five and a half year old at the time was doing Zoom school for herself. My wife was doing Zoom school for her students. And my poor toddler was just crashing everybody's Zoom meetings in the house. And a lot of times the language in the online business space is like, once you get to six figures and you have a whole team, then you can take a month off. But I think everybody should still be able to have it. You shouldn't have to have a business team to say, oh, I need to, I need to take a month off. I need to have my own business to be able to do that. No, everybody should be able to do that. So I had a baby in March of 2021. Then another big transition that I made was realizing that I wasn't entirely fulfilled. And I thought to myself, is this something that I really want to continue to keep chipping away at? I'd like to thank this week's guests for sharing their stories. In order of appearance, you heard today from Danielle Marshall, John Earhart, Vanessa R. Corcoran, PhD, Leah, Keisha Venson-Sheedy, Kate, David Failing, PhD, Emily Kinchy, MSW, Olivia Montgomery, Kyle Ireton, PhD, Natalie Cantave, Sarah C., Lance Eaton, Jessica Freeman, Irina Anna Rose, Michael Malarkey, PhD, Aileen Axtmeyer, Jordan Maney, and Sarah Marion. You can learn more about all of our guests on our website, reimagining-ambition.com. Thanks for joining me this week on Reimagining Ambition. Hit subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss a single episode. If you'd like to help us share these stories with even more mission-driven listeners, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps. And if you stumbled onto Reimagining Ambition because you're ready to explore what's possible for your career and you love practical career exploration, job search, and resume advice, please check out our private community podcast, Off the Clock. 
It's only available to folks who sign up. So join us at www.workwonderscareers.com slash podcast to learn more. You can also follow me on LinkedIn, Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. Check out the show notes for links to those accounts. See you next week.